Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Journalism. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And in this episode, we hear from Florida International University Assistant Professor Robert Gucci, Jr. He's here to discuss his book, A Transplanted Chicago, Race, Place, and the Press in Iowa City. It's a fascinating look at a town that bills itself as progressive, yet finds itself battling issues of race, relocation, and ownership of place. It's an important book that examines the press, law enforcement, and citizens of a changing city. Ted, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me today. So before we get too much into the book, just give us a bit of your background and how you got to where you are now academically. Well, I, uh, I started reporting when I was, um, when I was 16 for my, for my local paper and then um, was lucky enough to, to make my way through to some, some regional papers, uh, some, national, uh, some national stories, and then uh, uh, decided but trying to understand what it, what it was I'd been doing for, for most of my life. Uh, so I uh, went ahead and did my PhD at the University of Iowa, and uh, this book is, is um, probably the, hopefully the one of uh, several that, that are uh, really coming out of my own experiences as a reporter and then, and then what I was learning about the sociology and the, and the cultural meanings of, of uh, what I'm teaching in classrooms and, and what I'm doing as a reporter still, and, and trying to understand the complexities of how we cover everyday life in, in the news. So many books come out of dissertations, but sort of beyond just the fact that this was my dissertation or, or was related to my dissertation, how did you come about studying this subject about the southeast side of Iowa City and, and everything that goes along with it? Why this area? Yeah, totally. Uh, when when I was a reporter, I spent a lot of time you know, um, writing about crime and writing about uh, quote-unquote bad neighborhoods or the, the bad parts of town. Um, so when I, when I moved to, to Iowa City, where, where my wife is from and, and her family's still there, and actually she just took a job back in Iowa City, so I'm still splitting my home between Miami um, and Iowa City. Um, but when I first moved there in 2009, uh, 2010, uh, I started hearing the same rhetoric of, of 
black side of town and the same sort of narrative that had always, you know, dealt with in, in small towns throughout the Midwest, in Chicago, uh, in Milwaukee, uh, other places where I'd done uh, reporting. And I was really interested in, okay, well, what is this bad, bad side of town? So, so honestly, from the first uh, semester of, of living in, in Iowa City, you know, we ended up buying a house and staying for a while. And like I said, I still have family there. Um, I, really, I really found that it was a community where I wanted to invest not just as, you know, as a burgeoning scholar or as a journalist, but as a community member. And w- watching uh, news coverage on, on TV, uh, uh, radio, local radio shows, listening to that, and then obviously um, spending a lot of time uh, reading print and, and web stories about the southeast side or the bad side of town, um, it, it came pretty clear that that, that would be a, a, an area where I could not only just do scholarship but also do some engagement, right? And, and so engagement and citizen uh, journalism and civic engagement, uh, service learning, all those different things really um, uh, came to be for me um, as a fellow with the Oberman Center for um, for Advancement, it, it, it has to do with uh, uh, civic engagement and service learning. Spending a lot of time in the community as a community member, just as much as um, you know, being a, a strict journalist or a strict scholar. So, full disclosure for our listeners is is I'm a doctoral student at Iowa, and you and I have known each other for a few years. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting about Iowa City is that it's a town that projects itself in an image that is different from the way it's portrayed in this book. And it's, they're very much into saying they're culturally diverse and open and accepting, but with what you found and how the Southeast side is portrayed, especially within the press, it's very different than the image that the town and the people who live here want to project. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that, that has to do with, with lots of places where, where we live. Right. And, and, uh, we, we, we would call it ju- journalistic boosterism, uh, as, as maybe one way of, of explaining, uh, in the press or even in our own conversations about how great it is, the places where we live. You know, I live, uh, like I said, uh, now in Miami and we see it all the time down here, right. A, a, a dominant, uh, representation of, of who we are as a single community, as a single city of Miami, for instance, or of Iowa City. And and there are, you know, select groups of people who get to make those decisions. And and we all kind of know that. We all kind of get that, especially those of us who, who study, you know, local journalism and, and even, you know, national uh, journalism, the way that, that journalists portray place, right, a, a geographic location that, that has cultural meanings. I mean, that's not really a lot of really new uh, understandings, but I think in this project uh, we were able to explain, uh, and I say we because it, it was there were a lot of people who who shared stories and shared insights that made this project come together. So I think as a collective, all of that allowed us to see the depths of of that place making, right? So that so that when we're looking at Iowa City, for instance, we're saying, okay, well, wait, it's not just one community with one single meaning that's directly connected with. The university, right, as as most most college towns are, or it's it's not just about football, or it's not just about the city of literature, or it's not just about how open and progressive we are in, in terms of LGBT issues, which I don't know that Iowa City really is that progressive in in, in even that way. Um, it, it it allows us to see the complexities of how journalists operate 
uh, within their institution, right, within their interpretive community that I'm arguing is is really uh, including police and officials in business. I don't necessarily know if we should continue uh, in conversations about journalistic boundary work that that says, okay, here here's journalism, right? Here, here are the boundaries, and we understand that they can be fluid and that they can be open and closed. But, but I, I really think that we need to say, okay, here are these journals and boundaries, and who's all in there? And, you know, and, and to what degree are police in there, or to what degree are we as journalists in the the interpretive community of of policing or in uh, city governance, right? And so, I think this project really allows us to to take some of those understandings of placemaking. As a, as a power function and as a tool, standings elsewhere, or try to apply them anyway to see to what degree they may fit someplace else. How did you go about collecting your, I hate to reduce people to data, but for the oh. sake of you know, this, what it is, how did you, you know, when, you were, when you spent time on the southeast side or talking to people about it, how, how many, not, not how many, but who did you want to talk to and who did you feel it was important to include in, in talking to for this book? Well, I, one of the, the the most important things for me was was to to make this. I mean, this 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 project comes about because it is focused on telling stories that that aren't told, right? So, it, to some degree, it's a and and I and I hate to 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 label it as something that it may not may not fully be, but it, it, I really tried to apply elements of uh, you know black feminist uh, ethnography, right? Of, of a form of of uh, social justice where where we're going in and talking about power structures so where the data become um you know molded and shaped by by the participatory nature of of interviews or in this case mental mapping where participants both journalists and and officials of course uh, but certainly residents of the southeast side uh, were able to um, participate in, in another form of storytelling about geography and about placemaking through drawing maps of uh, where they go, where they don't go, and, and, and how they go about making understandings of places they're familiar with and places they're not familiar, familiar with. It was, a, it was a way of – it was a method of us trying to understand, um, you know, how, how do we see ourselves as a community differently – you know, or, or in, a, in a similar fashion within uh, similar groups, right? And so, and, and what are the meanings if there are major differences and if there are major similarities? And so one of the, the major findings, for instance, if you even call it that, right, because I'm with you, I, I don't know that the language really uh, is, a, is, is fits completely, right? But I think that one of the major things was the Iowa River is a, is a huge river that cuts through the middle of, of Iowa City. And, and in the, the mental maps of uh, officials and journalists, it, it had a very prominent position okay, in, all of, in all of those maps. Uh, only one out of you know, some 10 or so residents, um, only one of those maps had the Iowa River. And and a lot of the other maps just had tight circles, which were which represented bus lines, right? That that community in a in a predetermined route, where people felt isolated and said, "I don't know what's inside the circle on the bus line. I don't know what's outside the circle of this of this bus line, and I don't know that I'm really welcome in this community to explore those things." Well, that's pretty telling, you know, in terms of how people identify landmarks or identify. Um, ideographs of, of who we are 
or try to say this is an important part of town and it's an inclusive part of town, i.e. the downtown area or the university campus, whereas residents would say that same sort of space is, is unsafe. You know, it's branded by the University of Iowa. It's branded uh, by, by white youth, uh, college students, right, who, who, who residents uh, would say or have said to me, you know, just don't seem very open to, to, uh, to others kind of entering into, into their space. And, and I, you know, I know we do a lot of, a lot of work in scholarship about community journalism, um, but I don't know that we've spent enough time really understanding the process of how journalists uh, determine what a community even is. There's this important concept of, of news placemaking mm-hmm. that, that's, that's really elaborated on in, in the book. Exactly what do you mean by news placemaking, first broadly, but also in the context of how the, the local media was doing news placemaking for the southeast side. Well, what I what I'm trying to get to is is trying to build obviously upon a lot of the work that's done on on place representation, right? On you know, and, and Williams writes about this in City and Country, and Lulee writes about this in the other world, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of people who are writing about you know the ghetto and, and the the Parisi and others, and, and and what and what has become known as a place, right? As a as a as a geography, but there isn't so much. Um, about how that placemaking occurs, right? The act of placemaking, the act of power functions in trying to determine what dominant representations will be that appear in the news. And so really, you know, whether it's a, a sexy term or not, right? News placemaking really kind of comes down to its its most basic function of being about about how power is applied in the construction of representations. So that's kind of the, 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 the area I'm going with several different papers and, and, and with this project and some stuff I'm working on uh, for the future, trying to identify the function of place in terms of its, its role as an act instead of maybe just an outcome. So that's, so that's kind of the overarching thing. And in relationship to uh, the, the, the Southeast side in, in Iowa City, um, what's, what's really quite fascinating is in 2009 and 2010, where this book is, is mostly focused on, where, where I use these moments of, of disturbances. So there was a there was a murder. A, a, a black youth was charged and later convicted with the, white, the murder of a white landlord on the southeast side. Um, which, again, you know, even in this conversation, you know, southeast side, as as we write about, or as I write about in the book, is is really kind of this ominous uh, and also ambiguous um, space. But anyway, uh, there were there was the closing of a Mexican restaurant that was um, called a hip hop club and that that attracted a lot of black patrons but also a lot of police attention. Um, so there were, there were maybe four or five uh, disturbances, including uh, what, they, what the newspaper called a Mother's Day riot, where on Mother's Day, um, and I believe it was 2009, um, uh, might have been 2010. After five years, you think you'd remember what the exact year was just off the top of it. But uh, a family of a uh, of, uh, of black family, largely black family down on the Southeast side went into another person's house and into the street and, and, and had a, uh, a ruckus of some sort, right. Um, between, between two families. And, and that uh, addressed, uh, or that, that, that called to attention a lot of, a lot of police and a lot of uh, citizens who wanted 
the the Southeast side to, to have a curfew for youth to keep people off the streets. They put in a new police station down there. They, they, there was just like this huge overreaction to what seemed to be um, an isolated incident like much of those things were. And we're talking about a, a city where a murder, how, how dreadful that is, you know, happens you know, once every other year, which some may say is too much, but I mean, if, if we're being realistic, that's a really low number of, of that sort of violence. Um, and so what I, what I wanted to do was try and figure out what, uh, what apparatuses were being employed to try to understand that, that Southeast side. And, and I, and I hope you can edit this because I forgot the question. Oh, the question was how the local press, the, the, uh, oh, that's right. There's a Gannett paper. There are those papers. What are they? What are they and, and I shouldn't say papers. News organizations. Yeah. How are they? How are they news place making with the southeast side of Iowa City? Sure. Oh, thanks. So, so what? What really was going on was um, a lot of assertions being made. It seemed on the part of of the journalists, even those uh, I talked to who were very open with their assertions. Of I haven't spent a lot of time in this area, but this is what I hear from other people who also haven't spent a lot of time in this area, that, that it is a place that is full of black folk from Chicago who have moved here because uh, they get, they get uh, really good uh, social welfare, including affordable housing. Um, and that seems to make sense because I see a lot of press reports or a lot of police reports about uh, violent black folk on the Southeast side. And so that, so that just absolutely must be true, but I'm, I don't need to go there to really report that. I mean, that's kind of the, the assertion that was being made that, Oh, I hear all these sorts of things, which in some cases we might actually call hearsay. Um, and, and it was kind of brought to them as, as, as fact. And then they turned it into a fact and it was put into a context of larger narratives about, about black deviance and about urban deviance and about deviance in Chicago and about broken families and about neighborhoods that are segregated and the reasons for that. And, and it, just because those types of explanations make sense in, in our society, um, those are the, the major explanations that are used even, even today. And the, the fascinating part is all of that stuff was going down in the southeast side in, the 2000, in 2009, 2010, or it was portrayed as going down uh, in, in those ways at that time. Well, just recently, like within the last month, um, the Press Citizen once again wrote and, – and again, this is not a critique about – specific news organizations or specific journalists. This instead is, is uh, for me, a very fascinating journey through the same story told over and over again that's replaced from, from, from Newark to New Orleans to Chicago to Iowa City, uh, even to Madison, to Dubuque, to Waterloo, and, and to parts of Miami here in Miami Gardens. The same sorts of stories about black deviants just because that's what makes sense to our readers, that's what makes sense to the journalists. So it makes sense to the to the advertisers because if this these types of stories that that black people are just absolutely dangerous and crazy, if that didn't make sense, you know there would be there'd be an uprising, right? There'd be advertisers pulling their ads, and that's just not happening because it because it just makes that much sense because that's what we see in the media, right? That's what we see in in TV. That's what our parents have told us. That's what our churches have told us. That's what our laws tell us. Um, but, but long story short, the, the, the press citizen in the last month wrote yet another story, this time from the west side of Iowa City. An entire – now, the west side is just as undefined as the southeast side. 
right? Because in, in a lot of the conversations I had, the west side of Iowa City was pretty much everything from the top of the city to the bottom of the city of 70,000 people, but to the west of the Iowa River. That's a really big geography. And, and really the press citizen is talking about Pheasant Ridge, which is one particular neighborhood where there, there's some housing, there's a large Sudanese population, there's a growing African-American population, that have been moved out already from the southeast side, so force, forcefully migrated from Chicago with the destruction of public housing, right, uh, to the southeast side, which is now going, undergoing immense gentrification, now to Coralville, to the west side of Iowa City, up to North Liberty, all these other communities. It's a continued forced migration of black folk that the press is reporting about as being black deviants. The pr- front page of the Chicago, or of the, uh, press citizen a month ago looked just like the press citizen from 2009 and 2010. The cover said West side crime on the rise. And it had, a, it had photographs of black folk in shackles and it had photographs of police uh, at, at, at a crime scene of some sort. It had photographs of, of young minorities uh, getting services from a, from the Broadway from the, the Pheasant Ridge Neighborhood Center. Before it was the Broadway Neighborhood Center out of the southeast side. Now everything's at Pheasant Ridge. The whole narrative has been picked up from one location and put to the other. And the same stories are being applied about the Chicago migration, about deviant blacks that, that was applied in the southeast side. It's now being applied to, to Pheasant Ridge. And it's just absolutely quite quite amazing. The narrative of the Chicago migration appeared throughout that entire story. It started with a feature story of a woman who moved her kids from the dangerous streets of Chicago to the west side of Iowa City, and then she heard gunshots. And it reminded her of the days in Chicago. Now, that may be absolutely true. I'm not questioning her story or even the the validity or the accuracy of, of, of that reporting. But that the narrative has 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 never gone away and it's just being reapplied that's that's what's fascinating about this project to me it's it's interesting just to to paint a picture of iowa city for people who maybe have not been here it is where the university of iowa is it's about 70 to seventy-five thousand people about an hour west of the illinois border and you talk about this idea of of the rural ghetto um, where did that idea come from, this idea of the rural ghetto, even though Iowa City is not even a rural area? But yet it applies well to, I mean, it, it fits well to your research. Right. You know, it, uh, Iowa City would be considered a small-sized city, um, as, as you described quite well. It is, um, however, in the it, it appears out of nowhere. I mean, my, I'm, I'm always still shocked when I drive along an interstate or highway one when I'm coming in from Wisconsin or I'm coming in from Missouri and I come up um, a a highway or an interstate, Iowa city just kind of appears out of cornfields. There are lots of little towns around the area, but even highway one, for instance, coming, coming in from, from Wisconsin, you just all of a sudden end up in a residential neighborhood and then you end up downtown. You're like, where the heck did all this come from? (laughs) Like I haven't seen anything for miles. And now, all of a sudden, here's this here's this big city just kind of plopped in, into the area. There's this hilarious. So, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. There's, there's this. Uh, it's hilarious that whenever the Iowa football team happens to be on national television, they will show B-roll as they come back from commercial, and the B-roll is corn, 
Yeah. And, and the joke is, where is their corn in Iowa City? It's, right. it's, it's, you have to go almost outside the city limits. So I interrupted you. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's right there on the city limits. And, and right. so you, you don't have to go very far outside of the city limits because a lot of the city is, the border is corn. And so that, so there, there is an element of, of rural culture that that seeps into Iowa City. You know, it's a Protestant work ethic is is a, is alive and well, right? There's there's a there's a sense of of uh, commitment to to nature and to and to farming and to the environment. A lot of the students uh, who attend the University of Iowa and a lot of the people who live and work in Iowa City have had experience in rural Iowa, uh, or they have family still in rural Iowa, and so a lot of these. Rural values of, of hard work and, and, and loyalty and, and, and commitment to uh, making each other uh, more prosperous, those types of things um, still exist. But along with that comes this kind of you know paternalistic protectionism of trying to trying to protect uh, traditional Midwestern values, traditional white American values. I mean, if you go up to um, Dubuque, there is, uh, you know, there's this huge statue of American Gothic, right? But, but American Gothic is from Iowa. It was, it was uh, created, you know, based upon uh, the, 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 the culture of, uh, uh, of, of the Midwest, right? Of, of the America, of America's heartland. And so the rural ghetto, while, while that may, you know, may or may not fit com- completely in a literal sense, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that there are these cultural influences, right? That, that exist in Iowa city and in the creation of the Southeast side as a ghetto, as a means to explain change and, and, and difference and, and I think for a lot of people, uh, a threat and a fear to traditional way of living, right? So we, we, we've had we, – there's now scattered site um, affordable housing in Iowa City, meaning that uh, affordable housing can't be you know, uh, stuck in one area where, where people accept a housing voucher, Section 8 housing, uh, reduced housing costs, right? Uh, that it has to be dispersed – uh, evenly across the city, which, which for the most part, it's it's getting there. Um, but but it, it the southeast side still has uh, is still a location for for newcomers, uh, and a lot of them are from Chicago, and a lot of them are African American. And so, how else do you explain that other than relying upon the dominant cultural uh, explanations in our society that are so easily attainable, right? Um, you know, you can watch you can watch any TV show, and, and you'll see uh, the stereotypes. You'll you'll look into the Washington Post, and you'll see you know southeast uh, part of, of DC erupting in, in some sort of violence, or or uh, news coming out of Chicago, out of Inglewood, and so it's it's um it's just very interesting to see how this clash of understandings. Um, have, have appeared in the characterization of the Southeast side as, as this ghetto. I, w- I think it's important. I want to talk about some of the people who you spoke with and hear from hear their voices and your experiences with them. I do have one last question before we get to them. There's this, there's this chart on, uh, on page 184 of the book about the meaning behind the Southeast side. Southeast side is in quotes in which you draw or you show rather the correlations and how people associate certain discourses with, Iowa City Southeast Side versus Chicago versus Africa. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be one of the 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 for 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 people locally. This is going to be one of the 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 more um, controversial, unfortunately, uh, images. I think I think in, inside the book. And what I'm what I'm trying to do here is is create um, a rhetorical foundation for how the term Southeast Side became an ideograph uh, for Chicago, and how when when people said, and there are lots of stories about. If you don't like it here in Iowa City, then you should go back to Chicago. You'll still hear lots of stories of, of, of blacks in, in Iowa City who, who are asked all the time, are you from Chicago or where are you from? Uh, and if they say Chicago, they're like, oh, you're from Chicago, right? Well, what, what does that mean, right? Well, what does the southeast side mean? Um, if it means Chicago, we're talking about not Michigan Avenue when they when people say Chicago, right? We're not talking about uh, you know the flash and the flare and, and the money. We're talking about the hood, right? We're talking about where 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 poor blacks live in a ghetto, right? And and have multiple children. I mean the, the, these narratives, right? Whether that's true or not, um, that is that is the image. And so what I try and do in this in this chart is is try to explain why I've heard so many stories about people say, well, if you don't like it, you should go back to Chicago or, well, if you don't like it, you should go back to Africa. Now I have some stories inside the book of people saying that, that that's still what's said to them quite frequently in my classes at Iowa. I've had so many people, so many students maybe, but I mean by so many, it's like three or four, which to me is quite a lot telling me the same story about, how in their communities in Illinois and Iowa, they have places called Little Chicago in their communities. One, one young woman told me about a story that in her suburban Chicago uh, high school, they had a hallway called Little Chicago or Little Africa. Both of, bo- both of those terms being applied to indicate where black folk would hang where black folks stayed in their neighborhoods. And I had one guy on one side of the classroom in one class say, um, oh, in my town in, in Iowa, in my little town, we have a place called Little Africa. And then, and then a, a, a young, another young woman on the other side say, oh, my gosh, we have a place called Little Africa, too. And we're like, wait a second. Do you guys even know each other? <laughs> These people had no idea who they who, they never met each other before, and they said, "Well, what is Little Africa?" And they're like, "Well, it's our black neighborhood." Well, it's our black neighborhood too, and you're like, "What the heck? How is that even possible?" Like that's just so strange and bizarre to me. But it's but but maybe it shouldn't be. I mean, you if you read the uh, the Atlantic this month's Atlantic or June's Atlantic, um, there was a a. a, a really great piece in there about the case for reparations. And I don't know that I'm making uh, arguments about reparations to, to any degree in, in my own work, but um, throughout that great piece, and if you haven't read it, it's a, it's an amazing piece that you have to read three or four times to really get all the history and all the meaning there. It, it, it reminds us of the constant narrative regarding reparations debates in, in this country, where a lot of people have a rhetorical device of saying, if you don't like it here, then you should go back to Africa. Well, that's really, you know, I mean, it's almost like a, a Henry Ford sort of, you know, uh, um, isolationist per- perspective and that I think is rooted in a lot of uh, hatred and fear. And trying to apply that then in Iowa City through a chart like this and through this entire book is, is probably not very welcome. And it's probably, it's, it's not a happy thing to, to talk about. But when you have people in our communities who feel this way 
and hear these stories and come to some of these conclusions that I'm trying to relay in my work, how, how, how are we supposed to address that? What are we supposed to do? And if the press isn't addressing it, if they're not providing the same sort of legitimacy and authority to stories of discrimination, to stories of hatred, to stories of things that have become so ingrained that to us, uh, you know, we can easily explain them away, like, like different looks that people get, that people cross sidewalks, that people are uh, put into special ed classes at disproportionate numbers based on their race. If, how, how do we easily explain those away? And, and, and why do we explain those away? And why are they not given the same sort of authority as a police report? There was a police report when I was up in Iowa City last month about a person called in from the southeast side to the police and disappeared in the police log. And they said, uh, black subject walking by personal vehicle. And the dispatcher wrote to the, to the police, check all black people. What, is, what does that even mean, right? Check all black people. Well, I don't know what we're checking them for. Uh, and in the southeast side, there's still quite a few black folk. Um, it, it's, it's this sort of uh, rhetoric that's easily explained away. Well, that was, you know, somebody would say, well, that was just a police call. That was, you know, you can't, you can't um, use that as any evidence of racism. But I, I just, I don't think that that's true. And, and you know, Bonilla Silva and others write about this in terms of, you know, colorblindness, right? That we're in some sort of post-race America, um, and, and I, and which I think is a, a complete uh, falsehood, as, as, they, as they write. Um, and I just think that applying this to one community over the period of four or five years, as, as we have here, I think allows us an opportunity to really um, look deeper into the power functions of the press and if we're really um, if we're really doing our jobs as as reporters to to make our communities better, Howard and I know everyone's different, but when you started uh, working on the interviewing part of this of your research, how were black residents of the southeast side? How receptive were they to to what you were asking them, and and were they interested in, in talking about their experiences? Well, you know, every, I mean, everybody was, everybody's different. Everybody, everybody had a different type of reaction. I, I, I think though, um, I mean, before I, before I did any interviews or even sought out any types of interviews, I mean, I, and, and I'm not like the best uh, community involved, you know, individual, but I tried to spend as much time, uh, on that part of town and, and building, um, you know, relationships with people in that neighborhood and, and, and with sort service organizations, you know, trying to um, see if there was an opportunity for me to gain any trust or, or legitimacy to to have conversation, and and I think um, I think that happened. I mean, I think for for some individuals there there was some trust there, and I was trying to do some um, community forum stuff. I was trying to um, build some personal relationships before before going in and saying, uh, "Tell me your story." But but I, you know, if I were to generalize, I guess I uh, I would say. That and that I understand that there there was a lot of you know who who's this guy why do you want why do you want my story what are you going to do with my story um, you know when I was when I was doing a lot more reporting and I was going into neighborhoods you know it, it's quite obvious I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a white guy I mean my skin's quite translucent and I if I were to walk into a minority neighborhood I I, I got kind of what I represented I, I represented you know 
like one of four things. I was either with Department of Children and Families, I was with some other sort of official agency, I was a police officer, or or I was a reporter. Uh, and, and that and that I already kind of knew like what I represented in many of those communities in, in southeast uh, Wisconsin and in Milwaukee and some other some other neighborhoods. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a really hard thing to that's a really hard thing to overcome. And I think part of it is you have to uh, you have to be really honest and say, look, you know, um, uh, I, here's what this project is. And it's, you know, to some degree, it's self-serving. Right. I mean, I have to I, I have to do something for my for my career, for my dissertation. You know, you have to be honest about it. Right. And um, I, I think that it's, it's really hard to gain trust, particularly in that city where um, there are a lot of white uh, do-gooders. Right. Who think they get stuff. And I don't think I get pretty much uh, of anything. But they, they, they say they get things in relationship to race. But they continually disregard the same stories that they hear about black folk generally saying, you know, well, we need a better bus system. I mean, that's a pretty simple statement. We need a, we need a clean or, or a better bus system. Um, we need clean routes, not these like jagged back and forth uh, routes that come at really bad times. We need to be integrated with the city, right? I need to get to work. I need to go where I need to go. But yet for decades, nobody's really done anything. Uh, related to the transportation system, so why should I tell you anything about me if if nobody's going to if nobody's going to do anything and they're going to keep locking us up and they're going to keep having disproportionate numbers of of blacks jailed uh, in, in the county and and in the state of Iowa? So, it I mean it, for me I think it took a lot of time and I've been really struggling you know since the book came out of what do we do with this book like what what is the purpose of the book locally? Um, you know the the little bit of royalties that I'd get from a that I get from an academic book. They're all going into a charity, uh, one of the foundations in Johnson County, to try and pay for some summer uh, summer course or some uh, summer camp stuff. But but what do we do with it? And I've been I've been talking about how like do we do we have more community forums? Do we keep talking about um, the issues uh, in in Iowa City? And and I kept saying to some of my friends, I'd say. I don't want to be responsible for, you know, starting another discussion about blacks from Chicago um, and how they're such a nuisance because that's basically how that, that discussion would probably end up in the press and how people would talk about it. Um, and they, and my friends would say, well, uh, it's not really going to get much worse. I said, well, of course it can get worse. You know, like cops can beat your butt. Like, you know, you can, you can be taken out. And they said, "No, I have to deal with this every day. I'd rather us. I'd rather us continue to talk about this. Um, you know, somebody's going to have to do something at some point. But but we need to have some voices that are different than the normal voices in terms of explaining um, how people talk about our our part of town or how people talk about people who look like me. So I mean, so it's been it's been just as much you know a a." Uh, trying to understand how research and and, uh, research on journalism uh, and journalism can, can, can all work together in a form of community building that, that isn't just about um, the power structure. And that's extremely hard to do when you're part of that power structure. Was there some awareness um, from some of the people who you talked to, some of the things that you found with how the press portrays that neighborhood or, 
you know, the community, how it's will sort of wall itself off, you know, and not even notify or recognize certain geographic markers. Was there some awareness from some Southeast side residents of how they were um, just. Oh, of course. Identif- I mean, identified within the community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the, Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, these people just, um, uh, the, the, the participants were very aware and very clear, um, about, about, uh, how they imagined their their position in the community of of not being welcome of of you know and and we're talking about black folk who who weren't even living in southeast side right I mean just over the years people telling me uh, teaching assistants I worked with students I worked with other friends in the community who 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 were black but not from Chicago and didn't live on the southeast side very similar uh, stories of the way they were talked to the, the, the patronizing conversations about, um, Oh, I've never heard a, a, a black woman speak so well that you're so articulate, you know, the, the sort of just in passing sort of Iowa nice, uh, you know, conversation about uh, how they're just surprised that, that how that black folk could, could go to college and, and do so well. It just unbelievable, um, you know, blatant, but yet, uh, covert, right? Sort of, sort of conversation. But what was even more shocking um, wasn't that people who are who are living, um, you know, the, those uh, in a world full of stereotypes and, and, and who are being oppressed by them. I mean, I'm not surprised that they that they were uh, completely aware of the situation themselves. But what was shocking was how uh, the officials and the journalists were quite aware of of the rhetoric that was associated with the term Southeast side, for instance. Right. And, and I make the argument again that the Southeast side equaled, you know, ghetto equaled Chicago and equaled, you know, a lot of the, the, the privilege, uh, 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 the, the savage primitive, you know, sexually deviant, aggressive sort of, uh, archetypes associated with uh, an African savage, you know, that for some, that's going to be too far of a leap. Well, you know, they, they haven't, uh, that's fine, but they haven't, they haven't had the same conversations that I have, I imagine. That the journalists knew that when they said Southeast Side, there was, that there was no official demarcation of that. In fact, there's a Southeast neighborhood in, that, that's, that's recognized by neighborhood associations or by the neighborhood, you know, um, uh, by the city as being a, a distinct uh, neighborhood. But that's not even in the area where people are talking about these blacks living in the southeast side. It's, it's actually north and east of that area. And so journalists knew that, that there was this connection being made and that when they said southeast side, people were probably thinking – negative things about black folk. And I have maps in here and I have interviews in here and I have descriptions in here of how all of the journalists and all of the officials I spoke with defined the Southeast side in the exact same ways, in three ways. One, a larger geographic area because it was a Southeastern quadrant. Two, of being uh, south of a, of a major highway and then with the same sort of borders to the, to the uh, west and east and then cornfields at the south. And that had its own meaning of being, well, that's just, you know, that's, we're getting closer to the neighborhoods associated with the southeast side, they would say. But then they all had the same language when they say, but that's not really what people mean when they say southeast side. They don't mean just like all these, these streets and stuff south of, of Highway 6 and north of the cornfields. They're, they don't really mean that. What they mean are these three particular areas, an apartment complex, a particular stretch of road, and then a neighborhood center that services 
uh, a lot of the black folk in, in, well, most of their clients are black. And they have daycare and, and kindergarten and all that sort of stuff. And th- and they said, so so this is really what people mean by the southeast side. And I'd say, well, well, what are the types of people who live in those areas? Well, you know, they're black. They're from Chicago. They don't have a lot of work. They're poor. You know, they, they, they do a lot of drug running. There's some violence. There's some gangs. You know, all this sort of stuff. And I said, so when you write about this part of town and you say southeast side, when you use that label – um, and you, and if, and if I'm understanding that you think that people then associate that with all these negative stereotypes that may or may not be true, what, how, what does that, what does that mean for you as a reporter? And the, the response was, was, well, it's just easier to, to write Southeast side and tell it's a geographic marker. People know where that is. And I said, but there's meaning behind it. Right. And they're like, oh yeah, I know I'm really clear to understand what the, the meaning is behind it. I don't know that I'm meaning that as a reporter, but but you know if the reader makes that assumption, then so be it. Um, even if it may not be true, and that you know again, I'm not I'm not talking about anybody being a a good person or a bad person or a good reporter or a bad reporter, but instead I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to explore like what responsibilities are there um, to. Uh, uh, in, in these moments, when you know that you're you're reporting on something that's being um, interpreted the, the exact way that you mean for it to be interpreted, but that might actually be damaging to the community, what are the responsibilities that that we have as journalists? Um, you know, one of the thing one of the things I've always liked about your research, respect about your research, is that you've thought beyond just you know just the tenure and then you know sort of the academic and the theory, but actually how it can be applied. You know, in sort of a, a real world, real world context. What so? What is you, you touched on a, a little bit? So, sort of, where do we go from here? How how can how do you see this book as maybe a step or large or small in maybe making journalists aware of what they're writing and and, that, and the meaning that they produce? Well, you know, there's there's and, and it's funny because I'm I'm teaching a, a here here at Florida International. I'm teaching a a class this summer and then some classes over the next academic year that are part of a grant that we got to, to cover sea level rise um, uh, through the online news association and, and trying to do some civically engaged journalism. And some of the conversations that we're having um, has to do with how do we measure the effectiveness or the meanings associated with our journalism and using organizations or working with trying to work with organizations such as journalism that matters and, and some other uh, initiatives like the university, University of um, Missouri has, you know, a community development, community engagement person in the newsroom who who does measurements, um, including quantitative and qualitative uh, forms of, of research to understand um, the the journalism that they're they're putting out there. And so I, uh, I we're having a lot of conversations about assessment, and I'm and I'm of, of our journalism, and I'm seeing my journalism students like their eyes just completely bulging out of their skull, which I totally understand. Um, why are journal? Why are we part of the story? Why we shouldn't be part of the story? We should be objective, and and having the conversation of um, well, we are part of the story. We very much are a part of every single story that we do. You know, we may not be the focus in the same way that your sources are the focus of the story, but we are part of that story. We 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 are making assertions and we're bringing our own lives into it to make to make things clear and and to to explain to people 
what's going on in the world. And so we are at the center to some degree of, of that, of, of each story. So I think I would love to see journalists become a little bit more self-aware and, and more reflexive about, about the role that they play and, and how they put the news together and, um, actually maybe go into the community to do focus groups, not, not hire a PR agency or, or hire Pew or hire Pointer or hire somebody else to do research, but the journalists themselves go out and do assessment. And so in the spring, for instance, in a couple semesters, my students will be going out and they will be doing their own focus groups and they will be, they will be conducting surveys based upon the journalism that we've done over the last couple semesters um, to try to understand the audience and understand the meanings and try and see, okay, what, what outcomes from this assessment can we put into journalism to make it um, more about the community and community driven? So, so that's kind of like a larger philosophical, uh, you know, thing that I would like to try and instill uh, in, in journalists. And I think that that's kind of, at the core of this project is the more we understand about ourselves and the more we understand about our power structures, uh, the more we understand about where we go in the community, the more we understand about who we talk to every week, if we can map out our sources, right? If we can do a network analysis of who we go to for information, the more we understand about those things, maybe the more relevant we'll be to audiences. Maybe, maybe the more disruptive we can be in our, in our democracy. And, and I just think that that would be um, a philosophical thing uh, um, for us to do going forward. I mean, I do mention in the book, some other specific, you know, things that, that we could do. So for instance, one of the more uh, outlandish things I think some, some hardcore reporters would say is I'm, I'm, I encourage my students to, to not really cover city council meetings or school board meetings. Stop going to meetings, right? I mean, look at trends. The, the decisions that happen at meetings have already been decided, right? The, the, the things that, that are going to come up for a vote, they already know how those votes are going to come out, or we're pretty darn sure how they're going to come out. We just don't know if they're going to come out at 10 p.m. or 2 a.m. Like, we just don't know how long it's going to take for them to work through whether a development should go up or not, or whether a curfew should be implemented, or or whether or not a police station should be put on the southeast side of Iowa City. We knew that they were going to do that before they even went into the meeting, and any good reporter will tell you that they know exactly how the vote's going to come out before the vote even happens. So why go to the meeting? Why Why not be spending that time in those energies, getting other stories, right? Getting people to talk about, well, is a police station even going to help your neighborhood, right? And if the person says, no, because the police are just going to beat our ass, well, let's give that some authority and some legitimacy and say, okay, well, why do you say that? What is going on in your life? And after hearing that five, ten times, the, the reporters should probably come to see, okay, this is a reality that, that that I need to need to understand. So what's going on in my community? Does that does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. <clears throat> and the book is fascinating, and we could keep going on and on. Uh, but I want to give you a moment as well to talk about. You know, the book is out and it's done. You know, it was a labor of love, or maybe just a labor, but it's out. And but what is next for your research? What is what's not just with with this book, but I mean, like beyond. What else are you working on next? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I have a couple. I have another book project uh, uh, I'm working on where I'm trying to better um, understand the the power structure that we some of the things that we've been talking about and and see, to to see the degree to which um, 
you know, journalists are aligned with po- uh, police interests, for instance, or surveillance interests of the government, for in- uh, instance, and and if if in fact journalists are one and the same uh, with a, a, as acting as police agents and gathering information about our community for for the power elite, uh, conducting surveillance for for businesses and for military and for government um, through its uh, through its reporting and its and its and and, and, and their writings. Um, so that's so that's a, a project that I'm that I'm working on that that's due that's due in March. Um, but but at some uh, from this experience, I you know I've, I'm I'm itching to get back into doing even more um, reporting of my own, and and I have a, a manuscript that's uh, under review at a at a publisher here to uh, to write about uh, something completely different, but about uh, uh, frac sand mining in in Wisconsin. Um, again, that's a completely different um, uh, topic than 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 what we've been talking about. But I'm interested in how the press are talking about um, the collection of sand from from mines throughout the state that then are shipped across the country and used uh, in natural gas fracking. And it's and it's a part of the economy that that people aren't very well aware of. Uh, some journalists have been doing, you know, the the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism has done a nice job of of tracking uh, the the mines and, and tracking the le- legislation. Um, related to that sort of environmental stuff, um, ProPublica and some others have also done some work on on this, I believe. But but really, I, I'm interested in, in letting that that industry kind of play out a little bit more in the communities around where I grew up in Wisconsin, and 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 go back and do do some do some reporting and, and do a project that that talks about how. Um, how how this part of the industry has been affecting local culture, uh, local landscapes, environments, uh, geographies, and and really try to um, to to talk more about the cultural uh, elements of the placemaking associated with with um, uh, with this really um, uh, really unknown sort of sort of element of of our of our fracking industry. Well, the book is A Transplanted Chicago Race, Place, and the Press in Iowa City. It's an important book. Go pick it up. Ted, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. And as always, thanks for listening to New Books and Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find A Transplanted Chicago, written by Robert Gucci Jr. at Amazon and other retailers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.